like to preach a word today that I believe is very fitting for this situation. Because for, for about four months now, we've been facing this COVID-19 crisis and um, in Germany, we are seeing also already a lifting of restrictions. But when we look to other nations, we find places that look much more dramatic. We see there is unrest on the street. Our American friends are really suffering. Uh, lockdown has been with them for a long time now. Unemployment has risen dramatically. And we also see that in Israel. So let's not think just because things go comparatively easy in Europe and because we can travel, that not at the same time we shouldn't be thinking about what the God, Word of God has to say for this time. And at the same time, when you take a look at messages uh, on YouTube and so on, it is also time of uh, end time messages. It's time for conspiracy theories and so many things that are said about this that sometimes we don't even know what's going on right now and what really is the truth, what it actually is true for us. And I believe this is something that we need to look at very, very carefully. And I'll start my message now different to the first service. I ha was reminded of 9-11, you know, um, many of us, we still remember it was the disaster that struck when the two uh, airplanes flew into the Twin Towers and they collapsed. And we saw dramatic pictures and we also so um, we were able to watch it live on TV. Even the Twin Towers, they had evacuation plans and emergency pl plans. <laughs> what to do in case of such a disaster or a catastrophe. And there were people who knew what they had to do right away. So they didn't jump into the elevators, but they went to the escalators, the staircases, and they ran out of the building. And these pe people were actually saved. But there were other people who didn't take the emergency plan seriously. And when that happened, and when they heard, I don't know whether it were sirens or loud hailers or whatever, when they heard the emergency signal, they didn't take it seriously. And the entire World Trade Center collapsed on top of them. So there are emergency plans when you go, you know, when you fly on an airplane, you've got the uh, flight attendants before each flight to tell you the emergency plans. And sometimes I enjoy looking around because you can see exactly nobody's listening uh, and or many of them are not listening because they think they know what to do. But then actually when it comes to the worst, they don't know what to do. And the word of God also has emergency plans for a time just as this. And the problem that we as believers don't listen carefully and don't take seriously what we read in the Word of God because if we did we wouldn't have many of our problems we wouldn't see the disasters but we would see victories and we would see the Holy Spirit do things that he hasn't been able to do up to now so I am convinced that this time of the COVID-19 crisis it is something historically unique we've never seen anything like it before we have kind of gotten used to it but this year of 2020 is truly uh, 
it's like a, a an incision in time, in our time. And I don't need to be a pastor uh, to tell you that. It's historians who say that, politicians, they say it really is a turning point. And the problem, the question is, how do we live as a church? Where is our position? Have we understood God's emergency plans? And do we listen what the Word of God has to say? Because the Bible is very clear about this time. And there is a message that I call the oldest end-time sermon of the world, because you know that all of these end-time sermons, it's not about apocalypses and disaster and so on, but it's just one thing, one glorious goal of all of history, which is <coughs> Jesus will come again as the Son of God and he will be visible in his glory. A wonderful, glorious climax and everyone will see him. That's what the Word of God says. So the topic of this message is Luke Luke 17:37. wherever we find a body there we also see the vultures the vultures will gather so this is the oldest end time message uh, of the world wherever there is a body the vultures will gather Luke 17:37. and so let's take a look at the parallel passage we find that in Luke 17, 20 to 37, and that is actually entitled The Coming of the Son of Man. And so in order for us to understand this passage, wherever the, there's a body, the vultures will gather, that's a uh, summary of the previous uh, text and passage. So Jesus is talking about what will happen when he comes again, the coming of the Son of Man, Luke 17, 20 to 27. So do look it up yourself as well. And that's even uh, better looking into your own Bible than looking at the uh, slides here. But the first mark is he will come like a flash of lightning suddenly, just as a flash of lightning comes and will be seen and from one end of the he of heaven to the next one it will he will be seen by everyone and people will not be uh, prepared and now just to mention every uh, now verse now and then is they married and were given in marriage up to the day when noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all so that's the second mark, nobody was expecting it. So that sounds very familiar, because when we entered into COVID-19, it came suddenly. Maybe not for everybody else, but for me, it was suddenly. We had heard prophetic words before, but when the time was there, everyone was surprised. No one had been expecting it. Nobody was seeing it. And the third mark is very strange because that is what we can find in verses 31 to 35. Just to take one example, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be accepted and the other one will be left behind. So that's the third mark. We might be doing the same things, but one will be accepted 
and the other one will be rejected by God. So one is accepted, the other one is rejected. And that doesn't quite fit to the mindset of our time, right? Because the mindset of our time, even our Christian ideas, is that somehow everyone will make it to heaven one day if we only try hard enough. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible is very clear. There are certain criteria. One will be accepted and the other one will be left behind. The ones will make it, the others won't. And that takes us to our passage for today. Because the disciples are fascinated. Somehow they don't understand what Jesus is saying to them. And they asked a question that I would never have asked. They said, where? So that's a place for location, you know. Where, Lord, is what they're asking. Oh, I would have asked, when will that be? Oh, but the disciples ask, where will it be? Will it be in Israel? Will it be in New York? Will it be in Lima, in Tübingen? In Gomarangen, just a little village along the road? But then Jesus gives a very strange answer. He says, it will happen everywhere, to be precise, wherever, where there's a dead body for the vultures to find. That's verse 37. And they replied to him, and they said, where, Lord? But he replied, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So that's what made me stop, actually. I don't know what you feel like, but that's one of the passages that I kind of overread every now and then. Because, you know, when you don't quite understand something, it's easy to go on to the next thing. But about a week ago, I stopped there in my spirit and I started mulling it over. And let's take a look at two words here more closely. The one term is the dead body. The Greek word here is soma. And so at f initially it's just the word for a body, you know, what you see, the physical appearance. But at the same time, it also is the word for a corpse, a dead body. So the body where the spirit has left, it's just the outward a uh, vessel of the body. So that's Soma, the image for death, actually. Someone who's far away from God. It's an image, actually, for believers who have backslidden from God. And when it comes down to it, the Bible and Paul call it for life in the flesh. The second word here is vulture, aetos, and there's a different word for eagle, but here obviously it's something very threatening. So the bird is hovering over the carrion, basically. So vultures are birds of carrion, and here they represent demonic powers. And I remember uh, Genesis 15, and then we will understand it much better, because in Genesis 15, it speaks about the covenant that God made with Abraham. Adonai made this covenant with him, and we've heard this in many weddings. There was a cow, 
now a goat uh, and they're cut in two and to us it sounds a bit disgusting you know one half is placed this side the other one's opposite and then he was supposed to walk between the parts as a symbol for laying down our um, lives for one another and while Abraham was doing that the birds of prey came down and they tried to prevent this covenant from happening and Abraham was really busy from morning to evening to uh, chase away the birds of prey but then it says as the sun was entering setting Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him and see that is the picture here a picture of so many and I'm not simply speaking about our church of course we always begin with ourselves but in churches not just here in Germany but also in the nations worldwide wherever we see the demonic uh, vultures hovering over the churches like clouds of darkness gathering because they find a dead body there they find carnal Christians and this carrion stands for Christians who live in the flesh as the Bible says because these vultures find people who have no more life in them they find Christians who live an outward Christian life but the Bible says about them that they are far away Paul calls them carnally minded and their mark is that they are fighting against these birds of prey and carrion, fear and anxiety, demonic powers of lust, envy, jealousy, like Abraham. From morning to night they need to fight and because they had, have such intense struggles they fall into a deep sleep like Abraham. That's what Paul speaks about and that's not an Old Testament image, right? But this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 5 to 7. So my friends, that is really New Testament doctrine here. So Paul says those who are carnally minded, it says those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds on what is according the nature to the desires. But to be carnally minded means death. But spiritually minded is life. So to be carnally minded is enmity against God because the flesh cannot submit to the Spirit of God. And there's another German translation for that that can grasp this a bit differently. We see then in verse 7, if we allow our sinful nature to determine us, we live in rebellion against God because our old nature is not willing to submit to the law of God because it, it can't do that. And therefore, God cannot be pleased with such people. Wow, that's really hard stuff, right? Sometimes people come to me when I preach the word of God, when I teach like that, they say, oh, Jobst, now you really went for it. And I said, no. I only preach the word of God. My friends, we are no longer used to truly taking the word of God and reading it as it is written. Jesus says about himself that he is the cornerstone and either we will build on him or we will be crushed by him. The word of God is like a two-double-edged sword that separates between, uh, uh, bone and marrow. And if we want to live, we need to expose ourselves to the word of God because we can 
can only live and be released once we understand what Jesus wants to say to us. Because he wants to lead us to life. And therefore it's so important to understand what is the natural man and what is a spiritual believer and what's a carnal believer. And therefore it's so important to first of all look into the mirror of the word of God. Would you agree? Can we do that? Because you see we have a loving Father in Heaven. Who of you believes that? And everyone on TOS TV also raise your hands. Everyone believes that. We know it. We've got a Father who loves us. And every father, every father in heaven who loves his children, they don't want to place a yoke on them, but he wants you to be free of the yoke. He wants you to receive his gifts and to have a life in fullness. Can you say amen? John 10 verse 10, I have come to give life and life in all its fullness. That's what God wants to do. Life that is pleasing to God. So, my friends, you are determined and prepared for a life that truly is a testimony to other people. You have an inheritance. That is what the Lord has prepared for you. The heritage of infinite riches. And my friends, and all the money that's being printed right now would not be enough to express the heritage that you have in the living God. So turn to the person next to you and tell them, I am rich in Jesus Christ. We are children of the heavenly king. We are heirs of Christ. But it's strange enough that there are only very few believers who truly notice something of that inheritance for them. There are so few believers where we can tell the spiritual abundance by looking at them. With many Christians, when we look at their lifestyle, you rather feel, wow, they're impoverished. They've lost it or never even received what God has for them. With so many, as they live in a drought, they complain about need and lack, they're discontented. So many have a spiritual up and down, they live a life full of frustration. And you can't tell by looking at them that the fullness of Christ is living in them. And my question is, where does that come from? You know, with so many Christians, it's a struggle, an up and down. Why don't so many believers, why do they not experience the fullness that the Father has prepared for them? At the same time, it is in so many who follow Jesus, there's this cry, Lord, I want something better in me. Don't you have something better for me? And I believe that's where we should take a closer look at the Word of God. If you want to know how God sees you, we should really face the Word of God right now. He loves you. He wants to give you and me everything. He wants to give fullness. And first of all, we need to realize 
that the Bible actually separates people into three groups. And these groups don't depend on who is better or worse, who's uh, more intelligent or not. There is no cultural differences. But it's a biblical anthropology, but and the Bible divides people into natural man, spiritual man, uh, spiritual believer, and a carnal believer. So if we take a brief look at this, and in my message I want to give you a bit of a different emphasis compared to my first message, because when I preached this for the first time, I spoke more about the carnal believers, and it's worthwhile for you to listen on that to that on, po on podcast. I'm not sure whether we'll have an English translation yet, but anyway. But this, in this message, I would like to emphasize how you can become a believer who is led by the Spirit, so the, how the Holy Spirit can do this. So my fourth point here is a biblical anthropology. Anthropology is the science of man or humankind. Here is a Bible passage where we see something about the natural person. Who is it? It's someone who has not accepted Jesus in their lives yet. First Corinthians 14. The natural man cannot accept what is of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to him and he cannot recognize it. First Corinthians 2.14. You've accepted Jesus in your life, but everything in your life is about yourself, all your friends friendships, family, job, money. You don't have a relationship to God. That's natural, man. Someone without Jesus who's not been saved yet. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus yet, in the end, it's all about you, even though you might believe in God. But the Bible calls you someone who's not accepted Jesus as their Lord yet. So that's natural man. The second point is the spiritual believer, the Christians. First Corinthians 2.15, then the spiritual man makes judgment about all things. So someone who's at some point said in prayer, Jesus, I invite you now as my Lord and Savior. I want to follow you and all areas of his life, friendships, relationships, money, career, everything that is for you, you've given it to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I want you to lead me in all things. That's a spiritual believer. And the carnal Christian is someone who's accepted Jesus. Maybe you have accepted him five or ten years ago, two years ago, it doesn't matter. But it is someone who keeps living in defeat, who wants to determine their own lives, who tries to live their life with their own uh, efforts and keeps failing and failing and tries again and fails again. And that's really hard work. It's such a struggle. And that's not what God has for you, but many people live like that. Romans 8 verse 6. To be carnally minded is death, but spiritually, being spiritually minded brings life and joy and peace. So, to be carnally minded, you can't even know what God's doing. Maybe you attend church, maybe you watch Toss TV, but you don't experience the fullness of God. 
You don't experience him filling your life. You always stop at the same point. And that's what we want to take a closer look at right now. And I've uh, put up a little design here. You probably know it. I just want to show it briefly and, and remind you of it. What is carnally, being carnally minded? What is spiritually mindedness? And I remember when I learned this for the first time through Campus for Christ, they've got uh, this how to know uh, God, and they've, uh, they came up with those designs, and they're still as valid today as they were back then. But that actually really shows what it means to be carnally minded or spiritually minded. And here we see the mark, the mark of a so-called carnal believer, I don't know whether we've got this uh, graphic here. Yeah, we have this design here. So it's an up and down, your Christian life, you're doing well, you're not doing well. Sometimes you've got victories, sometimes you don't. It's a life as a Christian of peace and joy and being excited about God. And then you dip down and you'd rather chuck it all in. I want to tell you, that is not what God has prepared for you. If you live like that, you just don't have enough. Something's not quite right yet. Life where Jesus rules all will keep you leading upward continuously. But life as a Christian with the Spirit of God living in you and fulfilling you, that is something that is constant and stable. But someone who's carnally minded is not like that. So let's take a look at that first image here. So that's natural man, someone who's not saved yet. So the ego is in the center and all areas of your life, whether it's money, career, friendship, family, all these things are somehow circling around you. And of course, Jesus himself is outside of your life. Doesn't mean you don't believe in him, or maybe you don't. You don't believe, maybe, that he's the son of God. But you've never invited him to come into your life. You never put feet to your confession. So you never gave him any possibility to change anything in your life. And the second image now is the carnal Christian or believer. Now you've invited Jesus, you know, you went to a service once, at one point you prayed and you said this prayer and you said, Jesus, you, you know you need him and you invite him to come into your life. But still, your life is focused on you. You are in the center of things, and Jesus is there as well. And maybe if he gives you some good advice, it might change something. But your ego is still in the center of your life. And now we've got the spiritual believer. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15. Everything is submitted to Jesus. Your job, your jo friends, your intellect, your future, everything. Everything in your life is focused on Jesus. He is on the throne, and even your ego has to bow to him, because he rules your life. And so let's take a closer look at some of those points. What are the marks of a carnal Christian? And I promised that I would be brief with that, and then I'll be in more detail about the marks of a spiritual believer. So we have the complete picture. 
But I still want to mention these things. What are the marks of someone who lives in a way that's not pleasing to God, even though you've accepted Jesus in your life? So we need to hear that, you know, because we've, this kind of goes against the grain. We feel really upset. And if you are upset now, this is your message. Galatians 5.17 For the, the, the flesh is struggling against the spirit. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. So that's two powers fighting to the death. Two natures. The nature of God and also the nature of sinful man. So here, the sinful nature is the same thing as carnal nature, and that simply resists the rule of God. The sinful nature does not want Jesus to be on the throne of our lives. And as soon as your carnal, sinful nature is victorious, your ego, what you want, do you know what happens? You lose your joy and you lose your peace. Ever experienced that? You know, all of a sudden, oh, you used to have such joy, such peace, and all of a sudden it's gone. So that is a life in continuous struggle. And secondly, it's a life of repetitive defeat. That's mark of a carnal Christian. And we find that in, in Paul's letters, Romans 7, 19, the good thing I want, I don't do, and the evil I don't want, I do. Yeah, that's uh, Paul's story, but he didn't stop there. This is what he says here. Whatever I tried to do, it just did not work. Of my uh, anger, my negative words, all these things, that's nothing born in heaven. But it comes straight from the heart of your carnal, sinful nature as a believer. You know, in a carnal believer, Jesus somehow needs to share his rule because the, the soul, the psyche, is always striking, struggling. And that's your will, your emotions, and that's always fighting against the rule of Jesus. And the result is, wow, I feel so torn. I don't want to hear this anymore. I'd rather want to hear that I'm loved. Of course you shall hear that you're loved. But love, my friends, has certain boundaries because it does not leave you the way you are. Love changes you and wants to take you to the goal. And the result is that through this lifestyle of, of carnal, sinful living, this will always lead me to envy, strife, bitterness, and division. You can do whatever you want, but a lifestyle of uh, sinful, uh, the sinful carnal nature always leads to to a division. And in 1 Corinthians 3, we read, uh, um, let's see, where's chapter 3? Um, you are still worldly or carnal since there is jealousy and quarreling among you. So that means I might go to a service, but I'm part of those who actually judge others and say, oh, I don't know whether that person can come to a sermon. I don't know whether they can come. Hey, did you not know that we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, not by the style of a service? It's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and justice. 
no matter where we are, who makes us judge over others? So, uh, life in this in a worldly carnal matter is life in unfaithfulness and uncleanness. In James, we read that friendship with the world is enmity against God. That's what we read in, in the letter of James. And I know there's different views here, theological attitudes. Yes, we are to make friends with the world. We want to draw them in. But it's strange that the world seems to have such great power that most people who make themselves one and agree with the world don't actually draw people into the kingdom of God, but you are drawn back into the world. So God's view is very clear. He declares with great clarity that enmity, no, friendship with the world means I am like an adulterer, unfaithful to God. That's James 4 verse 4. And what does that mean? To be worldly minded. You see, there is a separation line. It's not isolation, it's not a frontier, not raising ourselves above others, but it's a separation line. First John. That's, you know, one of the marks to see what is of the world is everything that's not from the Father. Everything that's not part of the life that truly glorifies Jesus. So the Bible calls everything world that does not lead us uh, into the kingdom of God, but it's life according to what pleases me. And let me quote something for you here. A quote by a lady who has written an amazing uh, book, Ruth Paxton. And this quote might seem a bit old-fashioned to you, but God's view has never changed in this aspect. And she writes, the worldly attitude might show in entertainment, the hairstyle or clothes can show. She doesn't say it is, but it can show in these things. How we, what we do in our spare, spare time, the desires that are governing my life. But the next point, and then I will uh, come on to life in the spirit, is life in hypocrisy. I don't know how you feel like, but I didn't want to become a Christian because I thought, oh, Christians are all hypocrites. They say something completely different to what they live at home. And that's one of the marks of religion, right? They say hallelujah when they're up on stage and they worship and they speak about God's glory. But when they're at home, what happens at home? So my friends, it doesn't about, it's not about everything having to be perfect, but it's about not covering things up and repenting. So there is an alternative, Romans 8, verse 2. And the alternative is that we don't live as carnal believers, but as spiritual believers. So Romans 8, verse 2, that's what Paul says. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. That's a wonderful word. 
And now there are a few marks here, and then we can see how do we get there. How can I leave the state of being a carnal Christian, someone who's worldly minded, someone who's just focused on themselves, my ego? How do I get to the point that the Holy Spirit can come? That the Holy Spirit can fill me again and again? How do I get to the place where the Holy Spirit can revive me and the fire can burn again? Because that is what it's all about. Mark of spiritual believers. It's a life with a lasting peace. And after many years as a Christian, I can tell you, you might go through battles and attacks, but one thing will remain. Jesus says, I give you my peace. That's peace with God that does not pass away. And this peace is birth in the presence of God. It's a continuous peace, even if you are in battle, even if you go through crisis. But this peace is the peace that's higher than all understanding. So that's mark number one. Second mark is life where a spiritual victory is the rule for you. It's what you happens. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus at all times. So he says, I made you more than a conqueror. And so you take the word of God, you act on it, so you don't have victories and another victory and another victory, but it says here, but thanks be to God who gives us victory at all times. That's one victory for, for over sin. You don't have to sin anymore. The next point, life as a spiritual believer is life in supernatural power. John 14, 12, who believes in me will do the same works that I'm doing and will do greater works than these because I go to the Father. So that's a really cool word, right? And, and every now and then I thought, well, I don't know whether that's really true. But you know, Jesus spoke these words to Peter. He was a fisherman. He was well tanned. And probably Peter today would not be able to pass an exam at the theological department of the Tübingen University. Probably the professors here at the theological department would uh, exclude him as a fundamentalist and radical believer, and he'd be ostracized. But Peter waited for the power of the Holy Spirit. And there were the other disciples together with him. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, 3,000 people got saved, and they turned the entire Mediterranean upside down. They built church after church. They proclaimed the gospel. And what was his powers, my friends? We know it, right? His power was the same that's available for you and for me. His power wasn't his in his charisma. It wasn't because he was a personality. It wasn't because he was such a good speaker. His power wasn't because he was so well educated or he had an exam by the University of Tübingen. That wasn't the case. 
My friends, God said very clearly where this power was going to come from. This man, he had denied Jesus, he had betrayed him, he had lived as a carnal believer. He was an image of a carnal believer. Yes, he was together with Jesus, but the potential was always there to chuck everything in immediately, just as the 70 others had done. But he was waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit, and that came. That's the secret of his power. Acts 1 verse 8, actually. That is the very center of this ministry. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So that's the power to do the same works that Jesus did as well. That's the power that does not rely on human abilities, your own strength, your own wisdom. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that's available for you and me. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. When you walk in that power, you don't think about how old you are, 20, 30, 80, or how old ever. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's on a David Hathaway, on men and women of faith who are simply obedient to him. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And the next point, a life in the Spirit is a life full of commitment. My friends, the motivation behind commitment, that's just been discussed so many times, it's not our will. And it's not our decisions, because these things won't last. It will only take you up to a certain point. Even though we can move quite a bit, yeah? Every sports person, every athlete can confirm that. But that's not the point. The motivation, the engine of our commitment is the power of the Spirit and our love to Jesus. So it's the two together. Power of the Holy Spirit and our love to Jesus. And that's why the following happens. You are revived. You love Jesus. You minister to him. You serve him. Do everything for him. You say, Lord, I love you. And then somehow the world finds its way in. And all of a sudden, commitment becomes a heavy burden for you. Because the motivation and engine of commitment is not your will or decision, but it's your love to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And mark of a spiritual lifestyle is a life of increasing sanctification. And to be clear on that, sanctification doesn't mean you make, don't make any mistakes. Sometimes we think, yeah, you know, asking for forgiveness, oh, I'm sorry I made a mistake. But that's not the point. Sanctification is that I can stand blameless before God. Sanctification means that I live a life in constant humility and willingness to repent. And so how can I do that? Will you give me another five minutes? How can I live a life that is filled and led by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you hear this and say, okay, Jobs, I can recognize my, myself in that. It's quite enough now. Now let me see the other side. To be filled and led by the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And let me explain two or three things to you here. 
First of all, we need to understand Ephesians 4 verse 30. We can actually quench the Holy Spirit, or in German it says we can sadden him. And when I make somebody sad, it's always an expression that something in a love relationship is broken. You can make somebody sad who you love and who loves you. Someone who's not close to you, you might be able to hurt him, but you can only make someone sad uh, whom you love and who loves you. And life in the Holy Spirit is nothing else than living in a relationship to God and the Holy Spirit that is not tainted in any way. And that's why there are certain conditions. And if you're here and you say, wow, Jobs, I recognize myself in that. I don't want to live like that anymore. But to be honest, I don't have that fullness. I don't want to be that dead body, that uh, carnal being, the dead body that's void of spirit. I don't want to keep struggling and fighting against those vultures that come pressing down on me every day, that want to come down on my life every day, whatever their names might be. I want to live a spirit-filled life. But you see, there are certain conditions. The first condition is cleansing or purification. Some people say, well, your Bittner is pre preaching so much about purification. I really have to tell you, we will not see any changes unless we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. It's First John 1, 7. It's the blood of Jesus that's the only way to purify us from all sin. So we need purifications. The second is conviction uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So the Lord simply wants us to be honest. He doesn't want us to do certain tricks or do all the theological courses. He just wants us to say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm honest. That's what my life looks like. He doesn't want to hear all these, oh, Lord, yeah, I made a mistake here, or this can happen, or or whatever the excuses are, pointing to others or saying this is why it happened or that is why it's happened. Usually that's how we usually behave, right? When we point to others, actually our fingers point back to ourselves. We can only say, Lord, I am a sinner, forgive me. Holy Spirit, I made you sad. The next point is, is the extent of our purification. You know, when we confess our sins, we are so quick in saying things. You know, we so heard so often confessing sins is, is mercy. Yes, it's true. But we cannot just say the one part and not the other. I saw so many times how people were taken prisoner of darkness. People backslid. They became carrion in the true sense of the word. And they became enemy, enemies of the gospel. Because in their very core, they did not confess the sin that was within them. Because they thought they can just give the Lord a few bits and pieces of what he might like. 
But actually, the extent of our confession is all important. The word of God says that your eyes are like your deed. If you look at someone with, with lust in your eyes, it is like adultery. Hatred is like murder. If you think that you want to kill someone, you actually have killed them already. That's what the word of God says. And that's what it says to you and to me. Or to be easily hurt is like an outburst of anger. You know, these conditions for the Holy Spirit to come is for him to find a broken heart. Yes, Lord, that's me. That's not condemnation, because we are so quick in saying, oh, Jobs, you're just preaching condemnation. No, it's not condemnation. I'm pre preaching salvation and redemption, because only when we look at the truth, the Holy Spirit can come with his mercy and joy and fire. And then I can join him. I can give myself to him. I can seek him in prayer. I can take steps in faith. I can receive prayer from other people. I can take these steps and be obedient. And my friends, obedience means that I walk in the Spirit in agreement with his word. And while you do that, you see the Holy Spirit is starting pushing you. He's pushing you, pushing you. Because those who are driven by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's Romans 8, verse 14. My friends, I'm slowly ending here. And maybe you're here and you say, Wow, Jobs, what can I do? I have recognized myself in this mirror. I'm seeing those conditions. There is something within me. That something is bubbling up. And that's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's good. Please don't suppress it. We need to do something about this. And that's, that gets us back to the text I read to you right in the beginning, the oldest uh, end-time message that Jesus preached. It is about the coming again of Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is... In the last days, there will be one problem, and that's the problem that Christians will not be living with the fire of God anymore. They won't be living as spiritual Christians, but as carnal Christians or worldly Christians, and nobody will recognize it. Everybody will think that's all right, and nobody can discern it. And that's the reason why the demonic powers have, uh, have been able to gather over churches and denominations because they don't live in the authority that they should have. And I'm including us all and myself personally, I'm including us in this. And therefore Jesus says, remember the wife of Lot, that's Luke 17, 32, in his message here. Remember Lot's wife. And the rabbinical explanation here is that especially Lot's wife became a pillar of salt is because she kept hold of sin, impurity, her past. She never let go. That's the rabbinical interpretation. And the second thing he says here is take hold of this key. And you know what this key is? That's one verse. Verse 38. And that verse, and I really want to tell you, is something that Jesus himself said. Well, the other things as well. But you find this verse in every gospel, in every parallel passage. And that's very unusual. You find this verse actually five times. So that's not just, you know, something that needs to be said. 
But that was such a key. And with that verse, I want to close the message here, because that's the central point. It sums everything up. It says, in this time, when Jesus is coming again, when the Son of Man is coming again, I will seek the people who have understood and practiced this word. It says, whoever tries to keep his life, or in the original it says his soul, his psyche, so that's your reasoning, your mind, your emotions, your will. Those who want to keep it or save it will lose it. Or to put it in different terms, whoever seeks to save his soul, who wants it to remain intact and un unhurt, will actually lose it. That's strange, isn't it? So that's verse 33. Sometimes we try to repair our soul and we actually lose all of our spiritual life. And that's a big danger. And then it says here, he will not only lose it, Apolloni, but he will destroy it. And but that's not the end of the message, praise the Lord, because then the verse continues, and whoever loses his life or will lose his life or his soul will make it alive, will help her live. So it's not enough to pray, you know, when we are so full of pain for the pain to be healed. But the point is that we lay down our lives before him, that we lay, da lay down our psyche, our mind and will and understanding for him, that our ego will die before him. That is the foundation of the gospel. Only then you can spiritually survive. Only then things will start happening in your life. Then the Holy Spirit comes. And that's not a big thing. Sometimes it's just a broken prayer. Lord, here I am. Here's my will, my reason, my emotions, everything I am. Everything used to center and focus on me. I wanted to have everything for myself. Can you forgive me, Jesus? And I lay it down before you. Could you bind it up again? Could you heal that? Would you come and sit on the throne of my life, Jesus? And when Jesus hears that, when the Holy Spirit hears that, he comes immediately and he fills you. Well, he stands here for this love relationship. He says, wow, I'm no longer made sad here. I am attracted with my power. You are my child. Come into my arms. I've got the best prepared for you. I will fill you with my power. If you used to live in a carnal, worldly way, you need a fulfilling of the Holy Spirit so He would be able to lead you and guide you. So He would be able to take you by the hand. So He would be able to make His promises come true in your life. And if you live like that, you make a difference in this time. Without being torn up, without 
losing anything. Because he is the one who does it through you. So let's all stand together and pray.